Welcome to the Triage Method podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Mr. Paddy Patrick Farrell. How are you keeping this week, Paddy? Is my name now Paddy Patrick Farrell? Yeah, you know, I didn't know what you preferred, so I just said I'd go with both. So today is going to be Monday. You know Fred pronoun. 30 days has September, April, June, and November. Oh, it's 31 days, obviously, in December. So it's, it's not New Year's Eve. Tomorrow, New Year's Eve. <laughs> Fair enough, Gary. You don't know what day of the week it is. As Gary, I would just like to point out to everyone listening, we record our podcast early on a Sunday morning. And Gary, I don't know what he was doing. He was sleeping in or some, something. It was disgusting. You know, I literally texted him the night before, no reply, which is scum enough. Uh, texted him in the morning, and he was still half an hour late. He was just like, oh, sorry, man. I was in my bed masturbating. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> So I don't keep any notifications on my phone because otherwise I just get triggered, you know, it gives me like an emotional response. So I just don't have any notifications. And then I clicked into my WhatsApp and was like, oh, fuck. It's fairly weak. Yeah. Everyone knows that feeling though, you know, between Christmas and New Year's, everyone's just, well, this isn't necessarily me, but everyone's just sitting around eating, drinking, being like, never come back to work. But that wasn't me, you know. That's disgusting. Anyway, Gary, Why are we what here? is the topic? What is the topic we are going to cover today? Um, we're going to talk about the imminent throw. Basically, <coughs> the quota. Why wouldn't I? What are the pros and cons? I'm not going to lie. You just cut out for that entire thing. I'll just repeat myself. Basically, what we're going to talk about this week is the topic of training to failure and training further from failure. Why exactly would one want to or not want to train to failure? And basically, like, like what are the practical take-home points? What should you do? So begin the discussion because obviously people listening to this, they'll have followed people on instagram on youtube maybe they watch some you know videos on youtube of bodybuilders training or powerlifters training and they get an impression either way of they either have to train to failure or potentially even beyond failure um, to get results then they're also told by other individuals that you know you don't need to train to failure right and again, that position could also be dichotomized or, or sorry, not dichotomized. That position could be, you know, we'll say straw man in terms of those people kind of go, oh, it's all about volume and you don't need to get near failure. It's just do more sets or more overall volume, you know, whereas the people that are closer to failure are like, oh, you should do low volume and higher intensity, intensity meaning closer to failure rather than like percentage of one or n you know so no doubt if you're in this health and fitness realm or you look at people listen to people in this health and fitness realm you have been exposed to one of those two thought processes so what's the crack gary what like who should we believe is the answer somewhere in between or is one better than the other is it population specific what's the crack yeah so like this was actually on my mind this week because um, a guy I follow, not, you're probably aware of him from Lyle's group, Patty, but Lucas Tafur, he, on Instagram, he, he, he shared a, a comment that someone left on one of his photos, I think, basically mocking, saying like, 
who the hell would train to failure these days? Like, like, why would you be doing that? Like, no one does that. And it's like, whoa, like, this is so, such a jaded view. Like, that's, that's basically like taking the concept of being, quote unquote, like, I'm sorry, sorry to the guy that complained about us saying, quote unquote, but sometimes you just got to say it, you know, quote unquote, evidence-based, taking that, that concept and just totally running away with it. Because basically, like, one of the thing, one of the things that has happened in the last decade, <coughs> more than a decade, is people have started using, you know, RPE and reps and reserves, the rate of perceived exertion and reps and reserve to try and gauge their training effort in the gym. This is something that was done for much longer in kind of aerobic and endurance-based sports, but it's kind of a, a more recent thing that, we're at least, that people have at least tried to quantify in the resistance training world. And there yeah, I'd just like to point out there, though, just on that, that this was a concept that was done throughout the entirety of lifting history. People yes, used to say stuff like, oh, you want to leave one to two reps in the tank, right? Yeah, exactly. like, even if it wasn't conceptualized, because I think a lot of people, first of all, they're not up to date on their, their lifting history or you know the progression of lifting. And they think like reps in reserve or RPE is a, a totally new concept that's never been used before. When in reality, uh, it, it was used for pretty much the entirety of, of training. You know, people would be like, yeah, I leave one to two reps in the tank, right? And effectively, that's uh, we'll call it an RPE-8 or a yeah. 2 or IOR, you know? So it has been done, you know? And so it's not a new concept to those who believe it is because I see that, that thought process propagated a lot where they're like, oh, this is the, the most advanced, newest, uh, you know, training, cutting-edge theory. And it's like, man, you need to fucking... Be quiet if you don't understand that history exists. <laughs> and like the, the reason that's important is because like I think like it gets back to the point I was just about to make about kind of being evidence-based and science-based, etc. Is people think that the way that the wheel turns is that like research drives practice. And that's somewhat true, but it's 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 not doesn't tell the whole story. Like what really tends to happen is that like people know a lot of shit in practice. And then practice basically gives people guidelines on what research questions might be useful. And then we might get some hypotheses refuted <coughs> through science. That There's then a lag between that refutation and change in practice. But I think a lot of, a lot of people that are kind of, you know, more, more evidence-based in their thinking, sometimes they kind of miss that first step of, these things kind of being driven from practice first. And like the example there would be like people who were very clearly had practices that, you know, there was lighter training days involved. Like, you know, Louis Simmons, like for decades has been doing, you know, lighter effort days, lower effort days. Like you could just call them low RP, high reps and reserve days, you know, like, so there's, these have been built into programs for a very long time. Even in and programs that people are like, Oh, this is a, you know, uh, a push yourself program like five three one for example you know mm -hmm. they have like their their amrap set you know uh, or amrap amrap set uh, and like even in the book like uh what the fuck's his name uh your man jim, who wrote, jim wendler yeah uh like he's literally like yeah you should leave one to two reps in the tank and it's like uh, even though this is a, a higher intensity program and like you're getting closer and closer to failure he's still saying you know well like it probably makes sense to leave one to two reps in the tank yeah. Yeah, exactly. Same with things like like German volume training. Like classic German volume training was like ten sets of ten with 
60% of your one rep max. Like that was, that's kind of the key distinction was like, that's what you want to roughly use. And the point being that- And time, guidelines- uh, rest intervals and time tempo, which I hate when people are like, oh, I just do 10 sets of 10 and they don't, it's not. And you're like, I'm doing German volume training. And it's like, that's, you're not doing German volume training. <laughs> And, and like the, the point being there that like the combination of the rest period and the lighter weight will take one closer to failure in the latter half of the sets. First four sets should be okay. Fifth set, maybe feeling a bit, little bit tougher. But once you get to like seven and eight, you're really wishing you had just done a basic program. So like these, these types of things, these concepts have been built into practice for a very long time. And it's only because now that we have words for them or terms for them to try and specify them a little bit more it seems like it's a really novel thing. And it seems like, oh God, like everyone's got to do this now. Whereas like when you actually break down what we're talking about, when we're talking about failure, like it's such a subtle difference. Like for example, the difference between doing one rep, truly one rep in reserve and like leaving zero reps in reserve and reaching like technical failure or whatever muscle failure on the concentric it's a really subtle thing, you know, because like what you're talking about is you've already set up the constraints of a particular exercise. So you know that there's a point in that, in that exercise, that's going to be really difficult. And there's going to come a point where you're no longer able to perform the re- that part of the range of motion. However, it's not like your muscle is totally done, you know, that your neuromuscular system cannot continue doing work. Like if, if you had a machine that was, let's say, um, based on how much force you could produce, you know, it was isokinetic and you were continuing to, to produce force against it. Like you could obviously keep going, doing more work, but in resistance training within the context that we train in, you've got a fixed load and hence it doesn't change with the amount of work that you could actually do. So what we're talking about is something very specific where you can no longer do the prescribed work within the constraints of this particular exercise. It doesn't mean that your muscle is totally done. So the reason I want to get that point across is because people get so ideological about this. You know, it's like I am in the failure camp or I am in the not failure camp. And either one, like the people who train to failure call the other people pussies and the people who don't train to failure call people who train to failure stupid and not scientific. And like both of those positions are just ridiculous. Firstly, because it's something so subtle. And secondly, because just like volume, intensity, frequency, like in their strictest definitions, whether or not we train to failure or what one might call like relative intensity or, or where you are on the RPE scale, that also interacts with all the other training variables. And this is the really difficult thing about exercise science, especially as it applies to resistance training. You, it's very difficult to change one training variable in isolation because that's not what tends to happen in practice. The reason that's important is because when people who typically train to failure more often who typically do less working sets. People who typically don't train to failure and stay further from failure, they do more working sets. Both of those are totally valid approaches to the training process because you're simply changing the training variables that you're using. Just like when you, when, you, when we say things like, um, for example, doing sets of eight versus sets of 30 can both lead to, both lead to hypertrophy. However, you're probably going to have to get closer to failure and there's different considerations, maybe different exercises for those sets of 30. Point being, there are different interactions between these training variables and you can very rarely just change one in isolation. So at the very baseline level, the, the, whether or not you train to failure, like it's, it's, it's not necessarily the right question and doesn't, doesn't tell the whole story. So Pat, do you have anything to add there before we... Yeah, just, just on something that you mentioned as well. And 
this this is actually something that it's actually mind-boggling that this isn't mentioned at all uh, quite often anyway and uh, the fact that they always assume well i say they people always assume uh, that if you do a higher intensity that means you do a lower overall volume and that the assumption comes from the fact that you know if i'm doing a we'll say a lower a lower or pe like i'm not reaching failure i'm going to do multiple sets right but if you actually look at the the workouts that are done like quite often the people that are doing this high intensity close to the failure style workout they're still doing the same amount of working sets right but they're just doing it through a variety of different exercises right like they'll still do we'll say the RPE guys have 10 sets in their workout. The, the failure guys will still have 10 sets in their workout, right? They're just doing, I work up to a heavy single set that, you know, we'll say whatever, it's eight reps, you know? And that eight rep is like, excuse me, is very close to failure, you know, or potentially even just past failure, like they're getting a little bit of a spot or something, you know? Um, and then they do a back off set. And even though that looks like it's only two sets and like you compare the exercise from the individual doing failure sets was whatever you want to call it, the, the higher intensity crew, uh, they're doing squats say, right. And they get very close to failure, right. Or reach failure. Right. And then you have, and they do two sets, right. And then you have the people that are like, Oh no, RPE makes more sense. And they'll do three to four sets. Right. So you look at that single exercise and you're like, Oh, the higher intensity crew, they're doing only two sets versus this individual that's doing RPE, they're doing four sets. So you're like, oh, they're doing more volume and these guys are doing less volume. But if you look across the entire workout, the person doing the higher intensity, they'll go from their squat to their hack squat variation, to their leg press variation, to their quad extensions, to their fucking, I don't know, uh, line uh, leg press. Like they'll do a load more variations and they'll still end up doing the same amount of overall volumes as a measure of sets, you know, as the person doing RPE. And it's actually something that, you know, you actually really need to remember because this also has implications in terms of how you can train in the gym that you're in, you know, like if you only have like two or three different exercises in the gym you're in that you can do for a given muscle group, then you aren't going to be able to replicate someone that's able to do five to 10 different uh, exercises for that given muscle group so for you it probably makes more sense to do a little bit more volume on those given exercises that you have access to you know rather than someone that's like in one of these really well kitted out gyms and they have 40 different machines that they can choose from to target the same muscles you know so and again it's like also you have to take into consideration that quite often the rpe exercise people their workouts are a little bit more we'll say succinct, uh, quicker. They're a little bit more uh, lower total time in the gym. And I mean that because, again, if you're changing machines every single set, not every single set, every single third set, whatever, like you might have to do then uh, a few warm-up sets for the next exercise. And if you're constantly doing, we'll say, two to three feeder sets, sometimes they're called, uh, you're effectively still doing even more volume than, than the people that are on this supposedly higher volume program you're just doing those feeder sets at a lower intensity some would call that a a, a lower rpe uh, and you're using that to kind of get into that single set because most often these people aren't that are doing like a, a higher intensity program aren't doing again a set of squats uh, close to failure 
they do their back offset again because you're so close to failure you probably have to take a, a bigger rest period in between your sets first of all and then also it's like they're not going from their set of squats straight into their max weight for leg press they might do like okay i'm going to do a little bit of a feeder set and then maybe a second feeder set and those feeder sets are at like 70 percent of the weight they were going to use 85 percent of the weight they're going to use and then they work into their 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 top set and then maybe their their back off set right they've effectively done four sets you know uh the first two sets were just a lower or pe uh sets you know uh, and that is technically the same for the the rpe guys they they might do one to two feeder sets you know to get into their their working weight but the fact that you also have to change so many exercises in a given workout for the people doing the the higher intensity or closer to failure now that's not often taken into account in this whole discussion because again one of them might take two hours to work out while the other one might take an hour to work out uh, so that that has to be taken into account another thing just on that same topic is you'll also see something which is poorly uh, explained or utilized by individuals when they're actually trying to program this stuff for themselves they they will look at people and again they'll have low exercise variability like access you know they'll be like i only have like three or four different exercises that work for whatever muscle group you know for in in my gym right and they'll try to program a higher intensity program but they don't take into account that the people that are doing these higher intensity programs also tend to cycle through different exercises like they'll have a a push a rotation and a push b rotation but most people don't see that most people don't look at the entirety of the program and they just think like oh you do your leg day and every single leg day you come in and you try to get a new pr on squats you know you try to lift a heavier weight on squats or get an extra rep or two on squats but that's not generally how these individuals who are doing that actually program it generally they're doing something like okay week one i'm doing squats week two i'm doing hack squats and then week three i'm back to squats you know they're they're rotating through a variety of different exercises because again it, the, the the fact that they're getting so close to failure leads to we'll call it some sort of like systemic fatigue from that exercise and they feel like oh well i wouldn't be ready to progress that come next week or the next leg session you know so the, your overall approach has to take into account the overall training block and it's not just a case of oh i do rpe and i do higher intensity that influences your entire uh, training layout then and how you actually program your your mesocycles and that kind of stuff you know yeah like it, it like when it comes to when it comes to this question like you know whether or not one, one should train to failure or one should a little bit further away it's ultimately like it, it all, it's almost always hyper so the, th the reason that's important is because hypertrophy is a relatively non-specific adaptation you know and, and the reason i say that is because like in one of our last podcasts we were talking about um like components of fitness and like hypertrophy it's almost like a side effect of the types of training that you're doing so like when you look at hypertrophy it can be achieved through like really non-specific things like it can be achieved through doing 
30 reps of any exercise that happens to target that muscle or it could be achieved through doing sets of five with a different exercise once you're again challenging that muscle similarly like whether or not you if you go to failure and do less total sets or if you stay further from failure and do more total sets again that hypertrophy to build the maximum amount of muscle whereas i think that's fairly unlikely to be the case you know there, there's many different paths towards this outcome that is somewhat non-specific that's not to say that you know hypertrophy doesn't isn't qualitatively different between different training variables like that that probably is the case you know there's probably like if you were to to carry it out over a long enough period of time you probably wouldn't see the exact same you know molecular and cellular level changes between sets of 30 and sets of five you know across the course of multiple years like there'd be some differences there but for the vast in the vast majority of cases like the way people train it's fairly non-specific so i think we need to stop this pursuit of the all-encompassing program that's going to get everyone you know the results because you even see these differences like across like culture because like in in the uk there's a very different approach to bodybuilding as there is in the us you know there's there's even research showing that like uk bodybuilders eat a lot more carbohydrates us bodybuilders eat a lot less carbohydrates and again that's, that's <coughs> basically path dependence from who you've been following who has come before you um like in in the uk for example dorian yates is essentially one of the icons of British bodybuilding and a lot of his training practices are now carried out by others because you know he did really well with them but like as we've said before on the podcast i think like, the thing that was so cool about dorian yates was that he was basically saying, yeah, I'm going to ignore what everyone else is saying and I'm going to just do what kind of works for me. You know, like that's basically what he was saying. He's like, I'm going to figure out, like try to be my own scientist and figure out what approach works best for me. In that case, you know, he took away all these lessons from, from his training. You know, he didn't, he didn't really squat very much, but he did a lot of leg pressing. You know, that was one of the things in his training. And he used to have, I think, a Mars bar and a bottle of Coke after a workout. So I think if you want to take it to its logical conclusion, why aren't we all having Mars bars and Coke after our workouts? Point there being, look, there are many ways to get to this, this, this end outcome and don't fall all for kind of just following one guru and expecting your outcomes to be the exact same as theirs. Um, and if you are going to do that, like take everything else on board that they're doing as well, because that, that's only what seems to be logical. But anyway, to get to kind of the, the practical stuff here, my, the concerns, the pros, the cons, one of the, the concerns that often comes up here when it comes to rest and reserve and train to failure, this was actually something that one of my clients, James, brought up last week, was the topic of kind of pain and injury. And I think that this is something that not a lot of talk about because it's almost seen like, uh, just push through it, bro. You know, if you've got pain or injury, like, yeah, just get back train to failure when you can. But I've seen this with many people where despite constant niggles, pain in the shoulder, you know, like like constant constant symptoms of pain that are fatigue that something mightn't be going correct they'll continue to come in and try to fa train to failure every workout instead of just accepting that look this is not always necessary why not a few reps in the tank and still get some quality work in and obviously like my observations are not necessarily like reliable data but this does seem to be the case with a lot of the people who I follow, they're kind of reluctant to stop training to failure if that's what they do. And that's something that I would have done in the past as well. I would have had, you know, 
recurring kind of niggles in my shoulder and in my knee. And I felt like the workout was basically a waste if I wasn't going and go 100% and push everyone to failure. But it, obviously, I learned those lessons then over time. And that's something that I see all the time in coaching as well. And to be honest, like from an actual research perspective, there's not that much research on pain and injury in lifters in general. But if you look across sports and you look at like the relationship between what's called session PE, so basically how hard your sessions are, like one of the predictors of people getting more pain, more injury is constantly pushing to those really, really high levels of intensity all of the time. And that's basically not done in any other sport. If you look across other sports, what you see is that there's a, there's a strategy, just periods where you're going 100%, just particular sessions where you're going 100%, but other sessions then you're pulling back, you're not doing quite as much, you're leaving a bit more in the tank. And I think if you actually look into to the details of like the way a lot of people train, like for example, AJ Maris, who's a, a UK bodybuilder, one of the things that I see that he does sometimes is, yeah, he'll go 100% on some of the de his deadlifts and some of his pull sessions, but then he'll have a pull session where he's doing more machines and he's like, oh, I don't want any lower back loading or whatever. And I think that's a really smart practice. And I think that's something that you have to take away from these people who are training a little bit more often is that they've got other kind of, you know, safety measures in their program to allow them to recover so they're not constantly fatigued as well. Um, so yeah like that's the first thing is that kind of pain and injury concept that's definitely something that is of relevance here because if you're finding that you're constantly pushing to failure you've got this kind of niggling injury that won't go away it would be a really good idea to adjust the amount of effort that you're that you're kind of putting into your steps because that's one of the that would be one of the pillars for me when working with with clients who have you know undergoing a rehab process like calibrating the amount of effort you're putting in is really really important and it's just the same as if you were programming for running or any other Yeah, you just cut out there after you said it's the same as if you were programming for running. Okay. <laughs> so it's the same as if you're programming for running or any other sport. Basically, the goal is to have some way of calibrating the amount of effort that you're putting in. Like, it's not just about going out running as far as you possibly can or just like the old kind of GA style, run laps until you get sick. Like, that's very clearly like not smart training programming. We're, suppo we're supposed to be planning, we're supposed to be calibrating our efforts. And having some sort of way to do that is really helpful, especially when it comes to that kind of question of pain and injury. Yeah, just on that, the, the topic of pain and injury, effectively, it, it falls under the umbrella of recovery, right? And this is something, again, that's poorly elaborated on in, well, by most people that are training to failure or doing an RPE. And effectively, all it really is, either method is a way or a, a method of managing your overall training load so that you can recover for the next session right like there's going to be some certain exercises that you can only do a lower volume of work and if you find like for example they might overload certain musculature or certain tissues like your low back and 
while they might be effective for your quads, we'll take a squat for example, while they might be effective for your, your quads and your overall leg development, they, they might be limited like by, for, from doing a, a, a higher volume of work by other musculature or other tissues, like connective tissue, whatever. But you know they're an effective exercise for you. Like you feel your legs blowing up. You're like, oh, I actually get a huge mind-muscle connection with this. And because the lower back stuff might play into whatever the consideration, you might be like, well, I actually want to go for a, a higher intensity with that. So I only need to do less overall total volume, but I get a, a greater stimulus from that exercise like you might do two sets and you're like wow got great stimulus got whatever 10 overall effective reps from that versus trying to do four sets and they're all at an rpe7 and you're like okay cool i I maybe still got the same amount of effective reps i don't know if those are the same amount of effective reps i'm just picking numbers out of my head but uh you, you still got the same amount of effective reps but you're like, okay, well, by set three, my lower back was on fire. And by set four, I was, I was in bits, you know, and that, it just wasn't great for my overall recovery, you know? So effectively it is managing recovery. And you mentioned AJ Morris, and I think he does it really well in terms of how he programs things and, you know, speaks to people on social media. I know he has his own website where he actually goes into his training log and all that kind of stuff. Um, but he actually, puts that out there that it is effectively you if you're going to train this way you have to effectively manage your overall recovery and you can't just go oh well all my back workouts i have deadlifts in and you know they're just destroying your lower back recovery there's too much we'll call it systemic fatigue and you're not progressing other things then because excuse me the deadlifts and the low back volume is too much you know so and this kind of brings it to a uh, a bigger perspective and again like you said if you look at other sports where no one really other than bodybuilders train to failure all the time like powerlifters don't do it olympic lifters don't do it you know strength athletes generally don't do it you know they might get closer to failure on certain things at certain time periods in the year but for the majority of the stuff they're not doing uh really close to failure sets and that might be a little bit esoteric for you initially where you're like, oh, that's always, I, don't, I, I don't need to think about that because that doesn't apply to me. But effectively, they're using the gym to get better at their sports or facilitate their development in those sports, you know? And effectively, that's what most people are going to the gym for, you know? Like, forget about the bodybuilders because this is unfortunately where the information comes from, which is the bodybuilders, because most people think like, oh, I want to look a certain way. I have to train like the people that are really good at looking a certain way, right? When in fact, it's like, yeah, that's cool. They can train that way. They can do all that because they don't have a job. They don't have like 10 kids to look after. They don't have, you know, all these other stressors that you as an individual have. They're able to just do their training session and then have a two hour nap if they need to, you know? Um, Or quite often they're on drugs as well, which you're just not on, you know? So it's like, there's, there's all these other things that, again, you can't just take one part of the, the menu. Like this isn't an a la carte menu. This is like a set menu. You can't just like pick and choose what you want to have from it. It's, it's set. You, you can't do, I can't be like, oh, I want to have this main course, which is the, the higher intensity training if you're not willing to also eat the starter and the dessert, you know? It's like, you, you, you have to have it all. You know, there's no pick and choose. Um, so again like if you look at other sports like running is a good example like you don't see Usain Bolt going and sprinting maximally every single training session like there was no there's no way you think 
that would make him a better runner, you know? And there's no way you would think that, okay, if I'm doing that, I'm go- he's going to, you know, be able to recover for the next session and then have an increase in performance, you know? So there has to be some sort of managing of overall training intensity and thus overall training volume so that you can actually improve fitness characteristics that you're trying to improve, you know? And again, this is why you have to look at the overall training program and also then look at the, the actual exercises that you're doing and then also look at the, how you are recovering from those exercises. And again, like this, this is something when I, I hate when I see people that are really ideologically possessed, you know, they effectively have, you know, replaced religion or philosophy with, you know, a, a training ideology. They have the same fever uh, or fever, whatever you want to say that word, uh, in, in terms of their approach to training. They're like, oh, if you're not training the failure, you're a fucking pussy, you know? And it's like, okay, well, this is, I really don't care. Like, yeah, you you are effectively trying to burn people at the stake because they don't have the same belief as you. It's, 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 it's actually just stupid, you know? And, but also it's like, there's clearly like very clearly certain exercises that this will work for this was a higher intensity training, like training close to failure. And, and there's also clearly exercises that would work better if you just did a little bit more overall volume of that exercise and a slightly lower RPE. Like I always think of if you're trying to train your shoulders, for example, like it would be very rare and very hard to get a very good training response from doing like high intensity lateral raises, you know, like, Oh, I went to failure on my fucking, uh, I got a new eight rep max on my, uh, dumbbell lateral raises. And then I did a back off set of 12. It's like, all right, cool. Like that definitely works for a while, but there comes a stage where like, that's a small muscle group. You're not going to be hitting a new PR every single session with that. So you probably will be better off just doing overall, more volume for that muscle getting more effectively tension on that muscle across a given workout you know if you're saying i want to develop my side delts like again like you want to maximize the amount of effective reps which is probably something we'll discuss now in a second uh, across a given workout and that probably means that you know you're going to do multiple sets for that exercise you know and for that muscle group and there's not really a huge amount of exercises that you can do that target that muscle. So if you find one that you're like, oh, I actually really feel this, you know, maybe it's cable lateral raises. And you're like, this is perfect for me. Like, why would you then only do two sets at it when you could easily do like five sets at it and get overall more volume for that muscle group that doesn't have a huge progressibility factor? You know, there's not a huge degree that you can just add weight to that exercise you know so quite clearly there is exercises that are more appropriately used for you know we'll call it volume training or rpe training and there's quite clearly exercises that yeah you could use a higher intensity approach to them or you could just as easily use a lower intensity approach to them Uh, but again it depends on you as an individual and how you need to approach training based on your overall goals like i'll put my bias out there like i actually really enjoy training closer to failure like doing a sort of a reverse pyramid style training man i love that i love doing just like laser focus all i have to do is one set of this given rep range and all i'm trying to do is either get an extra rep or two or lift a heavier weight and it's one set like i don't have to think about anything else after that it's just total focus on that one set you know and then yeah you do a back off set 
But again, it's like, that's almost like a, a different exercise because it's a different rep range. And you're just like, oh, again, a laser focus for that set because again, it's, it's a different weight and whatever else. Like, I really like that approach. However, it's a terrible approach for me given my current circumstances where I'm trying to improve my you know, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and I'm doing four Brazilian, sometimes five or six Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu sessions per per week you know and like i'm effectively resistance training in the morning four days a week and then doing jits in the evening for like two to three hours you know it's like there's no way that i can recover in time for that jiu-jitsu session in the evening if i've gone to this really like beyond failure point earlier in the day you know and also you get to layer onto the that that i also am running a business and you know, have college to, to do. And I'm in my final year, you know? So it's like, there's, there's all these other variables that are contributing to my overall stress load and my overall training load that even though I like training a certain way, it's not appropriate for my given, you know, uh, schedule at the moment, my given, you know, stressors and given, you know, status. So it's like, like, not only have you, do you have to consider like the actual individual training program itself, you have to consider the individual and what else is going on in their life, you know? Yeah, like that's, that's pretty much the exact same as me. In, in like, I've always much preferred just training to failure and doing less overall work. Like personally, I would hate to see four or five sets of eight coming up on my program like i would not enjoy doing that in the gym with four or four or five sets of the same exercise like i've just i don't enjoy that i've never really enjoyed that but at the same time that doesn't give me an ideology that makes me like only recommend that to others because like firstly i can see where it would be far more optimal for me to follow such an approach that maybe i didn't enjoy quite as much um but i can also appreciate that look enjoyment is also important so it depends on the context, as you said, you know, the context, like, it, it, am I in a position to, to really train to failure here? Is it, is it something I'm going to be able to recover from? Or would I benefit from maybe pulling back another bit? And again, it's about the interaction of all those training variables. And to get to a bit of a more, a more nuanced point that I think is really important is the difference between, or not, not necessarily the difference, but what training to failure like actually is. Because like one of the things that you see in, in research sometimes is that like basically these studies are often carried out in controls or whatever who are helping out with running the studies. And for them to try and standardize what like training to failure is, they're going to be shouting at you. You've got people watching you. There's like, they're going to be saying, you know, one more, one more, like, and you see that in some studies where they're like, all right, the participants were instructed um, to continue sh doing more reps or whatever, you know? So there are the conditions that, that are operated under in, in those settings. So that's actually quite different to what happens in the real world very often, because sometimes what people say, people will say, oh, this is what zero reps in reserve looks like. And it's like, hold on, you had about five reps there. <laughs> like, come on. And this is where it does get a bit more difficult because like there is, there is research as well, which makes it difficult to interpret a lot of other research that suggests that people can be off by like multiple reps in terms of like not knowing where they actually are in relation to, relation to failure. Like there was one study where participants were instructed to choose their, <coughs> 10, repetition, their 10 repetition max on the bench. And there was up to a difference of 11 reps in terms of what they predicted. And like, 
that that's obviously not a perfect example because it was an example of someone selecting weights in advance but that's obviously people train you know if you're going to do a weight for sets of eight to ten and you're like right train the failure you're obviously going to choose what you think you've done or what you've done in the past so it just gives me gives you insight into the fact that there is a lot of variation in this stuff you know so there's variation in terms of like how well people are at gauging how much effort they've put in and you see that when a lot of people go to uh training camps for example they'll they might be on like rep 12 and they've got some bodybuilder dude shouting at them and suddenly they get 20 reps and then it kind of puts everything into perspective and in saying that have you have you really been trained to train to failure all the time so i think what a lot of people who are think they're training to failure are doing they're actually still leaving some reps in reserve so like the point being there that even if you are not counting reps in reserve or you're not tracking your rpe it's still there it still exists so a lot of the time even if you're not using it you could potentially benefit from at least trying to quantify it because that's just a nice thing to have in your training lab if you're saying like yeah i probably had one rep just one rir very simple you probably had one rep in the tank and then you know how that felt for the week going forward um, because there is there is a really big difference between truly going to failure and doing what a lot of people think is going to failure and the reason that's important as well for the other side is because if you are this person who maybe is more in favor of reps and reserve and working at a particular RPE, you still have to be accurate with that. And you have to know where failure actually is. Because I think a lot of people are, are like, oh yeah, this is a at RPEH or two reps in reserve. I mean, you look at the video, it's like, cheapers, man, you had at least eight reps. <laughs> like, like there's loads of reps in the tank. So that's where things become a bit more difficult is how we interpret um, certain research studies how we interpret like the application of RPE and RIR and how that varies in between individuals. Yeah. Like I think that's probably the biggest con of reps and reserve or RPE is the fact that people simply have no fucking clue of how to train to failure. You know, they've never actually even approached it. Right. And that's, that's obviously uh, an issue of, you actually have to experience that yourself. You have to actually experience going to failure on an exercise, you know, and I mean like properly going to failure for that given muscle or for that given movement, because this is something that you also have to layer on top of that is quite often people will effectively reach technical failure and then stop the exercise, right? Which is probably a good thing, but that isn't muscular failure. Right. And this is, first of all, it suggests that, you know, your exercise selection probably could be better. Right. Because if you're reaching technical failure before your the, the target muscle is failing, then, you know, it's probably not a great approach. A, a good example of this would be something like squats. You know, you might notice that your legs, while they are clearly working in the exercise, you might reach a point of failure where, you know, maybe one of the other muscle groups in the, the whole chain of things that are contributing has fatigued and it's not able to keep the position that you want to keep the tension on your quads. Like you might notice this if you're like folding over in a squat and it's like, this, you've actually changed the exercise while doing that exercise. So it's not the same exercise. You already reached failure at a certain point, technical failure. And you're not actually at muscular failure because you're now shifting the, the tension somewhere else. This is another easy one to see this in something like a, a hamstring curl, like a line hamstring curl where, you know, people will reach a little bit of muscular failure and the whole way through the exercise, they've been keeping their hips glued down to the pad. Like they, it's rammed down to the pad, glutes are contracted. And then 
they get to a point where it starts feeling a little bit like, oh, my hamstrings are feeling a little bit fatigued. Uh, maybe your glutes are also feeling a little bit fatigued. And all of a sudden, even though their hips have now shot up into the air and every single rep is, they're feeling it in their low back, uh, they'll continue going. And it's like, this is, you've switched the exercise. You've actually, you're now doing two different exercises in a given exercise set, right? And that's a, that's a, a con for the, the higher intensity people. You know, and ultimately it can be solved by picking better exercises. Like if you have an exercise, like the, the only way you can truly train to failure, you know, in my eyes at least, is if you have an exercise that is perfectly suited uh, strength curve wise to, or resistance profile wise, re- resistance profile wise to the strength curve of the, that muscle, you know, like if you have like a hack squat that is, you know, unloading the movement in the bottom position, where maybe you're not your strongest and then it gets a little bit heavier as you go up where, you know, you have more muscles contributing to that, you know, and it fits the the strength profile perfectly. You know, that's the only way you can actually truly reach failure for a given muscle. Because again, presumably we're talking about uh, hypertrophy because again, strength athletes don't do this, you know? Uh, So presuming again, it's like you're, you're trying to reach muscular failure deep only way you can do that is if you pick an exercise that is perfectly suited to the ability of that muscle to produce force in that given range like at that point of time in that given range you know so if you genuinely think you're reaching muscular failure doing something like a squat i I have news for you you're probably not unless you are literally built like a, a chinese olympic weightlifter and even then it's like you're probably going to be limited by your ability to hold the weight on the bar like your arms might go a little bit numb or your upper back might lose a bit of tightness or your core might be limiting or whatever you know and you would probably get far better results if you got on something like a hack squat that was you know perfectly aligned with your ability for your quads to and glutes to an extent to output force you know so like that's also something i see is poorly discussed in uh, this the whole discussion of you know RPE versus uh, higher intensity. It's like your exercise selection has to change if you want to change a, or train a certain way. It's like, like reaching failure on your deadlift because your grip gave out. It's like that's that's not you're not training the muscle that you wanted to, you know, or your upper back gave out and you're trying to use them to build your glutes or something. It's like like. The, your, the point of failure is not the point of failure for that target muscle. So there's clearly going to be better exercises to target that muscle. So why are you reaching failure on something that isn't the, the target? Like if your upper back is fatiguing and you can't output force for your glutes then, then all you've done is effectively reach failure with your upper back and your glutes have got a, a lower RPE stimulus, you know, even though you've reached failure. It's like you're, yeah, but the glutes, the target muscle, presumably for that exercise has, has reached uh, an RPE seven, we'll say, you know, it's like, like you just trained RPE for the glutes, but you failed on the exercise because of a different group. So your exercise selection has to be bang on point, which is also somewhat of a con then for the uh, high intensity people, because most of them, again, like we said earlier on, are going to cycle through different exercises and there's no way those different exercises have a perfect resistance profile. That's also something I see as a bit of a con for, you know, uh, higher intensity people. Like if you know you have an exercise that is perfect 
like again like for whatever your chest your back whatever it literally lights up every single fiber of that muscle you can get full contraction it's beautiful it's the most perfectly designed exercise for you like why are you doing a shit ton of different exercises that are less effective just so you can keep training that exercise with two sets you want to do a high like a an eight rep set and a back down set of 12 or 15 or whatever it's you've only done two effective sets for that when you could have easily like this is a perfect exercise for you it fits you perfectly like it could not be better you could not design it better and you're like yeah i only do that once every two weeks because you know my paradigm is you know i do two sets and i rotate through different push a and push b or whatever it's like and i would much rather see you do more sets on that exercise that's perfectly fitting you and you get more out of that exercise as a result you know what are your thoughts on that Gary? yeah i think i think that kind of muscle specific rpe concept is really important to to think about because like personally i mean if i was to do a set a set to failure on squats and a set to failure on leg extensions it would be a very different experience for my quads as in like i would be be like subjectively i would be a lot more fatigued and sore and struggling to walk in my with, with reference to my quads on the leg extension than i would after the squats so to, to try and quantify things solely through that lens of rp or reps reserved like it's just not complete so you do have to ask yourself like what's the what is the rpe like you don't have to quantify this but like like what is the rpe for the particular muscle that i'm that i'm actually sitting and uh, like that's really important because that not you go to failure or whatever but like your actual <coughs> exercise like you could certainly choose better exercises and, and that's a good point as well about the the resistance profiles like generally the more well matched the resistance profile is with your capacity produce to produce force throughout the range the closer you're going to be able to go to quote-unquote context of that exercise um because otherwise what you're doing is you're reaching failure in one point of the range of motion kind of as i said at the start it's like a particular condition but the rest of the range of motion you could still have you know the potential to complete that exercise but that was the one that was limiting so there are differences in why one would reach failure and, and another example of that would be reaching failure because of your cardiorespiratory limitations like it wasn't just, it wasn't really muscular and go on to that like to conceptualize what you just said a second ago like if you truly want to say you train to failure on something like a squat which most people are going to be limited by that bottom position you know in the hole like to effectively go to failure on a set of squats you would need to do your failure in that bottom range and then you move to like three quarter range squats and then as you reach failure it's like you do half squat and then you reach quarter squat failure and then you're like okay cool now i've actually reached failure because again this is what most people are doing they're, they're changing the exercise during the exercise again i used the hamstring curl uh, analogy there where some, they start shooting their hips up and it's, you've changed the exercise so how is that any different than just changing the range in which you work in that exercise and truly getting to failure because if you're saying like failure is the most important thing then surely you want to be complete failure which would be you would fatigue the entire range you know you would go beyond that range specific failure you would not be limited by just one portion of the range you would continue doing some portion of that range until you hit complete failure you know a squat is an easy one to see because you know the resistance profile is you know quite handy in terms of it's like hard in the bottom position easier 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 you know so it's like that's the only way you can reach failure true failure on a, on a squat 
You know, it's like, start shortening the range. Anyway, go on. Yeah, I mean, like, like you could do that, but because the exercise is so systemically fatiguing, so to speak, like, you probably would not recommend <laughs> doing that. But the point, the key point there being that, like, failure is not one thing. It varies between exercises and it varies, varies between individuals. So it, that is something, you, you know, you want to think about. And don't just, don't just think um, uh, that you have to stick to one particular thing. It could be the case that your early exercises, you stay further from failure. And the later exercises in your workout, you go a bit closer to failure. You know, for example, if you were that person who your squat feel like it doesn't train your quads that much but you enjoy the exercise and it maybe it targets your glutes and your adductors and your lower back really well then what you could do is you do that start your workout and then you throw in some closer to failure sets of leg extensions later in the workout to basically fill in the gaps because the relative rpe for your quads was much lower on the squat so like that's why programs have to be considered as a whole and that we can't just like be like oh yeah that's all go to failure because a lot of this is emotionally driven. Like I was reading a post the other day from Jordan Peters and um, like he was basically saying like, fuck no, I do a rest and reserve thing because he wanted to try that for a while. Yes, you know, JP is, yeah, the fucking failure camp. Whereas like, again, it's about realizing that JP is doing what works for him and what he enjoys. Like that's the key thing. He says it in like, almost all his videos and his posts and everything he's like look even if rp or rest and reserve was going to be better for me i get so high on that feeling of training all the way to failure and you see him in the gym like he's screaming he's shouting he's fucking hammering his chest it's like this is a guy who clearly gets high on this stuff so for him and his training adherence and his training enjoyment you can certainly make the case that that is that that is useful but you don't just use that as like a scientific reason for you to go and do that because if you have a different experience you have to let that inform your practice you know one of, one of the things that also comes into this is what some people find when they train is that at different points in the workout they'll feel that a particular muscle is contributing more or less so again that's a programming consideration like if you find that you're it, when you do bench press at the start of your workout you're you feel it mainly in your chest your shoulders and your triceps like that's really what's what's kind of the limiting factor whereas when you do it third if you actually you've done a couple of exercises you feel your chest way more then again that is changing what this construct of failure actually represents because it's it's more likely to be as a result of the chest potentially if your subjective experience is, is reliable there so yeah this changes throughout the workout as, as i was going to say the cardiorespiratory thing is another really important consideration because what's going to limit your output on a squat for a set of let's say 12 to 15 is far more likely to be cardiorespiratory and that someone's it's the genuine the, the the demand to continue pushing blood to the muscle <coughs> removing waste products deliver oxygen etc that's going to be a big limiting factor. Your ability to use your respiratory muscles and take in that oxygen, take in that air, that's going to be a limiting factor. And, you know, respiratory muscles, they fatigue and they have their own kind of metabolic reflex that can affect your overall muscular output elsewhere. So it's all one, it's all one system. So the fatigue that's generated there is going to be slightly different in nature to if you were to do that 12 to 15 on a leg extension. So again, they are two different things. So what is contributing to your failure? So the overall point being there that another, there are many things just that on that as well. There's also that kind of like we'll call it mental uh, failure, where you know you're just not able to kick it into a, into gear, where you're like you're coming into you're supposed to do a heavy set of squats and go to failure, and you're just like 
and today I'm just not like it's just not there I'm not I'm not mentally I'm not able to get into that place where I need to be where you know I can turn everything on and just fucking become a warrior and fucking be ready to die under this bar and it's like yeah that's again it's a consideration that's probably more important if you are a, a real life individual and you have other things going on you know especially if you train in the evening and you've done a, a hard day's work beforehand and you know in, in work at the moment you're under a time pressure and there's a lot of stress going on and you know you know you have to rush home tonight because you have that event that you know you and your girlfriend are going to and it's like there's all these other considerations that go into that kind of mental uh, preparedness for for that workout and again that that's that's a contributory factor to your overall programming considerations because again it's like you know that you're going to have to come in and absolutely fucking destroy two sets of squats and you're just not able to kick into gear for that it's like that that's that's poor programming then because you're not considering the rest of your life it's perfectly fine again if you are literally a full-time bodybuilder effectively and all you have to consider is like oh my workout later that's that's all that matters you know i'm setting up my entire day my entire life around that workout i'm doing it at a time in the gym when i'm most prepared i'm doing it at a time when i'm most you know fed hydrated mentally stimulated whatever it is and it's like all those things have to go into your your approach it's not it's not uh again it's not a an a la carte menu you have to if you are going to try to emulate how someone else is training you can't just emulate the training without emulating the the lifestyle you know Yes, sir. Um, in terms of like the RPE reps and reserve failure, in terms of like actual recommendations and kind of key summary points, it should be relatively clear by now that neither of us are ideologically possessed by any particular camp. Like I'm so agnostic when it comes to training programs and nutrition that it's just like, look, lots of things work. There are so many different approaches that can work which is why I don't think someone is stupid just because they do German volume training. You know, a lot of people that you know are more into kind of being quote unquote evidence-based and everything these days, it's like we sort of just laugh at all these programs. Whereas like, if you can give me a reasonable justification for why you're doing something, tell me like why you're doing what you're doing, and how you're applying it in accordance with that reasoning. Like that's absolutely fine. You know, if you enjoy doing 10 sets of 10 with one exercise and you're doing it with, you know, you're putting into putting together proper considerations, like for example, not going to failure in the early sets and going to failure in the later sets. I think that's fine. You know, there's obviously there's some there's some research that sh that shows many sets in a given workout probably very helpful and probably doesn't lead to more hypertrophy beyond a certain point. But I mean, when you're keeping those earlier sets much lighter and you're kind of getting into it, you're getting into the flow, it mightn't be as as harmful or as detrimental. So, point being, there are many different things that work for the vast majority of cases in my programs anyway i'm re recommending between one to three reps in reserve but what you have to realize there is that when i'm coaching someone i can see how they train so they send me videos and if they send me a video and they're like this is two reps in reserve and i think it's like five then that's something we work on so just like any other skill your ability to gauge your effort can also improve so i think what some people will do is use the information i presented earlier about how people aren't really that good at gauging what failure is. So they just kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, therefore, 
just go to failure and stop trying to leave reps in reserve. Like the, the point of co counting reps in reserve or trying to quantify them is that you get better at it, is that you, you begin to learn, you know, what is two reps in reserve and it becomes more reliable over time. Um, that's, there's, there's, there's research on that showing that with your years of experience, your ability to gauge the amount of reps in reserve that you have is far more reliable. So if you're a beginner, like, yeah, you're probably not going to be perfect when you start gauging this stuff at the start. If you're trying to go to failure or go one rep from failure or two reps from failure, you're probably going to be a bit off. And that's fine. That's, that's why we train. And that's why coaching is about helping people to get better, better at this stuff. So I would at least recommend trying to implement it into your program rather than just saying, do as many as you possibly can. Like, I think to be fair, that's a good sweep all recommendation. Like just do as many as you can, like as in for, for the general population, it's not going to be particularly harmful. But I think if you want to take a step up in your programming and be a little bit more analytical, I think trying to maybe gauge your reps and reserve and get better at gauging them over time like makes a lot of sense. Yeah, like I actually really like for beginners, just again, to so much on my bias, like I actually like them effectively not giving them an RPE or a reps in reserve and just being like, do three sets of 12 or three sets of 10 or eight or whatever rep range. And it's like, I just want you to choose a weight that you can use for all of those things, you know, and effectively to get better at doing that. And it's like, that is somewhat self-limiting because while everyone always says, Oh, I trained to failure. Like if you truly trained to failure on your first set, there's no way you're matching reps on your second set, unless you take maybe five, 10 minutes break in between, you know? So all these people that are doing all multiple sets and they train to failure again, you're probably in the camp where you don't actually know how to train to failure, you know, cause there's no way like if it's, if it's failure, your muscle has fatigued. You're not probably, you're not able to put out the same amount of force for a second set. And even if you are able to do it for a second set, the, the, the ability to do it for a third set goes down exponentially, you know? So you might be like, oh yeah, I got eight reps on my first set, eight reps on my second set, and I got four reps on my, my third set, you know, if you were truly going to failure. But most people would find they'd go, I got eight reps on my first set, and then on my second set, I got three reps. Because you were actually at, true failure you know um but most people don't train like that so for beginners i actually just really like just giving a a, a set target and a, and a rep target and being like right so we want to fall in between eight to ten reps that's what we want to do you know and once they're able to effectively always choose a weight that allows them to get their three sets say you know and they're consistently able to choose a weight and do that and they're able to progress that once they start moving intermediate stage i'm like okay so what we have been doing is probably training one two three maybe reps from failure for those sets let's actually start quantifying this so that you know how things are progressing over time given your level of uh, effort and then you might start doing stuff like again changing rep ranges for that exercise uh, in, a, in a given workout you might be like okay so the first set we want to do whatever three to five reps at an rpe three or sorry, an or-I-or three, and then kind of back off work, uh, three sets of eight to 10 reps, again, at a, an or-I-or two, you know, because they're actually better able to understand what that means. So for a beginner, I actually don't like or-I-or or RPE. I just like them to learn how to actually effectively train and get somewhat close to failure. Because again, like that, as we discussed, is a skill itself you know and you have to to learn what that feels like and how to actually you know, push yourself so i don't like to even though i've said it previously i don't like people to be beginners multiple times you know i find that this is an effective way of 
you know, training people long-term because they effectively learn how to train hard and they learn how to gauge their level of intensity without actually directly quantifying it. And all you have to then layer on top of that is actually quantifying it, you know? Yes, sir. I think we've covered most of the caveats, I think, of erection reserve or RP. One thing I want to also cover as well, which is the, the concept of effective reps, right? Um, because that, that effectively is what this whole concept is coming back down to. And it, like the, the concept of effective reps has a lot of we'll say issues with it. Uh, like it's not, a, it's not a, a perfect system, but effectively this is what the, the bone of contention is in either of these arguments, right? So most people would be in agreement that the closer you get to failure, it's the last few reps that matter the most. Right. And I don't think pretty much anyone is going to argue with that. Like they're not going to argue that, oh, I'm using my 10 RM and I'm just consistently doing two reps. I'm like, you're so far away from that being challenging. You have to do a boatload of volume. You know, like I'm talking like if you're doing something like chin ups and you're, you're, you can only do 10 bodyweight chin ups, like you're training. Every day, throughout the day, you're doing two chin-ups, two chin-ups, two chin-ups, you know, like every, every couple of minutes to get an effective volume because it's so far away from uh, effective reps, right? And then people conceptualize and quantify it as five, the last five reps are the most effective. Again, it has methodological flaws. It has issues with that whole concept, but it's very easy, just kind of, you know, intuitive. It's the last five reps that matter the most, right? And this is effectively what people are arguing over when they talk about this higher intensity, you know, towards failure versus this RPE or reps in reserve type training. And it is effectively which one of these leads to the most effective reps over time, right? And again, it's pretty easy to quantify because again, if you're going to failure, and I mean true failure, you know you got those last five effective reps. Right, like you got them because you hit failure. You got the reps, <laughs> you know. And so at least you know always that you've hit your five effective reps. You know, again, you can say it's six, you can say it's four. I really don't care. I'm just saying that often it's conceptualized as five, right? So you've hit your effective reps because again, there's no more reps there to go. You know, and um, whereas someone that's training further from failure, the argument against that would be that you're getting less effective reps per set. Right. But again, as we've been saying earlier on, this is a poor way of thinking about it because again, you have to look at the entire workout and you have to look at multiple sets, you know? Um, and again, I was doing just quick maths uh, earlier on on that. But again, if you train at two reps from failure, right. And like that's two or I or, and you do three sets, right. That means you've got effectively nine effective reps over that set. You know, it's not technically true because you will probably fatigue closer to that last set. So, you know, maybe that last set is four effective reps because, again, you're, you're closer to failure. Um, but we'll just easily keep everything consistent and effectively say you got nine effective reps across that workout, right? Again, you could argue then that the higher intensity people that are doing two sets have got more effective reps because they went to failure on the first set they went to failure on the second set so that's 10 effective reps because again we're saying it's five two sets of five that's 10 effective reps you know um but the people that, that kept a rapid or two reps in reserve or did an rpe eight they've only done nine effective reps over their three sets but again it's like 
you have to look at the entire workout as a whole and see how many reps are effectively done or how many effective reps are done across that entire workout, but then also across that entire uh, weekly, monthly, yearly training plan. Because again, like this is not often talked about, but if you do a higher intensity training method, you are definitely going to have to deload at some stage. Now, I actually hate the word deload. I hate the concept because, first of all, deload is not a word. Um, unload is a word. Deload, not a word. Um, but you effectively have to do a deload, right? Which, just so we're talking clearly, that effectively means you're doing some sort of RPE or reps of reserve training for a week, right? And there's no real way around that unless you are just consistently changing your program itself, you know, like changing the overall structure of your program so that even though you're reaching failure, it's on a novel stimuli or novel stimulus so that, you know, it's, it's actually less than what you know you're actually capable of. It's the only reason you failed is because you didn't really know how to coordinate your muscles correctly for this. And it was, it was fatiguing as a result of that, you know? And so you're going to have to deload. So again, that has to be taken into the equation because while I don't necessarily think it's a, a great approach, you could effectively never deload if you did reps in reserve the entire time. Because while you are accumulating volume, you're not actually getting as much of a neural fatigue from always going to failure. You're not actually getting so close to failure that maybe you're picking up little niggles and that kind of stuff, the injury stuff that we've talked about your recovery is potentially better across a week, across a training block, and you may have to effectively deload less often with that. And again, those deloads have to be taken into account when you look at the overall effective reps that are done across a year. Because again, if you're doing a deload and you're only getting ever like one effective rep for each of those sets, you know, like the less often you can deload, the more often you're actually progressing your effective reps or the more often you're accumulating effective reps you know so again that kind of stuff has to be taken into account now again like that again becomes a programming thing where you're like okay well maybe you are deloading with rpe and or ior as well and you're doing it uh, systemically like you're doing it consistently every eight weeks we'll say or whatever it is every four weeks so pick whatever random number you believe is the the magic deload number um but Again, you just have to look at those things over time. Like if you know, oh, you really enjoy training to failure, but you're burnt out after three weeks and that fourth week always has to be an easy week. Again, that has to be taken into account when we're counting these effective reps. It's not just a given workout. It's not just a given week of workout. It's the given year. It's the given multi-year of workouts. You know, again, if you constantly get injured because you're going to this higher intensity uh, place where you're like, you're going beyond technical failure and you're shifting tension to other muscles and other connective tissue and that kind of stuff to get those reps then potentially that increases your risk of injury now does it necessarily maybe not maybe you are just perfectly built for all the exercises that you're doing and there's no no even slippage of tension onto different passive structures or anything like that um but again that's something that you have to take into account because if you get injured and you have to take two months out of the gym Obviously, the person that isn't taking those two months out of the gym is better able to progress long term, you know. But again, that comes up to the concept of, you know, does reaching failure increase your injury risk? And that's a very hard thing to argue either way, you know. Um, but the more consistently you can stay in the gym, obviously, the better results you will get. Yeah, and like just to reinforce what you said, like when you're thinking about the kind of effective reps or hypertrophic reps concept, like 
think of it conceptually. Like, don't go away from this podcast like trying to track your effective reps because like we just don't, we do not have anywhere near that level of granularity in hypertrophy research to be able to know that. Like it's like the, the point could be taken from, I think it was Bruce Lee. Arnold said basically the same thing, but like don't start counting your reps, like start counting them when you're starting to hurt. You know, it's like, to be oh, honest. He also said that, he's like, how many crunches do you do? I only start counting them. I stop counting <laughs> one of those Mike Tyson jeepers. Um, but anyway, yeah, point being that uh, it is like, uh, although <coughs> you don't have a, a fine level of granularity, like as the reps progress towards the end of the set, they're probably increasing in their hypertrophic nature, but they're also increasing in terms of the amount of so very clearly people can understand that rep one of a 10 rep max set is not the same as rep 10 of a 10 rep max set so there's probably more hypertrophy from that 10th rep but there's also a lot more fatigue um so you do have to always keep that in mind like that is one of the things you do see in the research is that the time of course of recovery is prolonged when you start to get closer to failure um and 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 yeah basically just just take that take that into account take away the concept that you know the the hypertrophy nature is increasing as the set goes on but also take into account the concept that fatigue is also increasing and that's really important when you're starting to consider the things that we brought up earlier in terms of multi-joint exercises if you're doing multi-joint exercises and one particular muscle or two particular muscles or areas of the body are being the limiting factors and they're getting progressively more fatigued you have to think about how that plays into your into your program because for example if you're doing um let's say deadlifts at the start of your workout and taking them to failure just hammers your lower back. Like you feel like that's super fatigued and that's your limiting factor. Then if you're going to do barbell rolls next, you know, just as an example or any other exercise that is taking away from your potential on that exercise because your RPE or reps in reserve, your, your perception of fatigue, even you could say is going to be increased going into that exercise at baseline. So everything affects everything else. And this is one big interaction. Um, so, so do understand that. And just, just, just don't run away with like ideological stances about whether or not you should train to failure or how many sets you should do or how many reps you should do because it's just not that simple and many things work. That would be my message. <laughs> true, 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 true. Um, yeah, that actually just reminded me we need to do a podcast on this kind of uh, stimulus to fatigue ratio because again that's something that is poorly elaborated on and obviously that is both an intra-workout and multi-workout thing to consider because effectively you know it talks about recovery as a whole and then obviously that informs whether you should be going to failure or whether you should be doing rpe style training for a given exercise you know um that is that is Mike Israel's uh, concept. So we should actually just get him on the podcast and talk to him. I don't know, like he's a bit bit too big. Like, <laughs> um, I just don't like arguing for or against other people's ideas because I'm like, no, you explain them first. Sure, but it's also not his concept. He just created the words for it. No, I know, but that that's what I mean. Like, you know, it's it's obviously it's a fairly intuitive thing that most coaches would obviously like have in their mind. I think, but. You know, I hope. I hope. Anyway, Gary, I think that covers everything. Um, we probably forgot some stuff, but we do have a few other training method, whatever this is called, uh, podcast planned. So we will be covering some other things. And if we missed some things, we will likely cover it in some of the future episodes. Um, so where can they find us, Gary? 
you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. Best options being Facebook, Triage Method Community Group. You can interact with us there, ask questions, post in articles you're interested in, post your training clips, ask us whatever you want to ask, discuss things, whatever you want to discuss. Um, so that's an open group. And there are a few hundred individuals in there that are all interested in training, the science of it, nutrition, etc. So good place to be. YouTube, of course, always. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel. Really helps um, when you do. I know there was like 10 new subscribers this week, which was, I think, off the back of us saying, hey, subscribe to our channel. You know, So do that if you haven't. Um, obviously, it increases the likelihood that when you go onto your YouTube page, you'll be suggested to watch our videos. So if, you, if we are posting videos and you're missing them, then that is helpful. You know, we've posted, I think, at least four, if not five, videos on the channel um, just in the week gone by. So obviously you probably won't have seen all of those, but if you're subscribed, you get to see what you might want to watch. Um, or if the, you're subscribed to the email list, you would also yes. see. So um, you can subscribe to the Triage Method newsletter. That's our newsletter that goes out every Sunday. We don't send you like emails multiple times per week. We used to do that in the past, but like it seems like the newsletter is probably just a better option just to give you all the information at once because that's what I like to do. I like to sit down kind of like on a Sunday morning and have a look through different newsletters I'm subscribed to, see if there's anything interesting. And the thing is, it's just like a two minute sweep. You sweep through the email, is there anything good here? If there's not, there you go. It's two minutes of your time gone. Um, so subscribe to that below. Our services, of course, you can engage with. Um, online coaching, one-to-one -one online coaching. Now is a good time to sign up as we move in to the new year. Um, so if you'd like to get involved with that, just check out the link below, triadmin.com forward slash online coaching or with the group coaching service, which is a bit more hands-off designed for people who, you know, they've kind of, they kind of know their way around the gym. Even if you don't know your way around the gym too much, the program is good for someone to be introduced to in that we can easily make some adjustments to maybe reduce the volume initially or give you some advice as to where you should start but um the good thing the good thing with the group coaching is whether or not you are familiar with all the exercises that are going to be there we do have an exercise library so videos that are going to show you basically how you should train these exercises as well so that's a useful yeah i think the, the, group coaching, there. No? the group coaching is best for people that effectively just want to outsource their training you don't want to have to think about this you know or PE or IOR stuff. They don't want to think about, like, should I reach failure? They don't want to think about any of these training var variables. They're like, look, I have college to do. I have a business to run or I have a job to do or I have a family or whatever other variables they have going on in their life. And they're like, I just want to know how to train. I also just want to have some diet advice so that I know that I can reach my goals. That's the kind of person that I think the group coaching is most effective for. Someone that's like, I just want to outsource things. I don't want to spend tons of money on it but i also want to get results i don't want to have to think about what to do i want to just open up my document and go that's today's workout boom let's do it tick the boxes with that tick the boxes with nutrition send in some videos of my technique to the group and that's it i'm done i don't have to think about uh training methodologies or anything like that it's just all done yes sir and then Group, so that's group coaching. There are male and female options there if you happen to want to be segregated based on your gender slash sex. But no, it is quite beneficial because obviously there are some, some differences in the general interest that people tend to have um, between males and females. And obviously some people feel more comfortable sharing videos that are 
with other people like them. So that's a good, good little bonus thing. Um, you say tribalism is okay, Gary. Tribalism is okay, absolutely. I'm pro tribalism. This bigot. I'm pro tribalism as long as it's not based on like false premises, like I don't know, being you need to be vegan or whatever. You know, or as as like, like the Irish always do they're like oh I need, I'm a Celt they all talk about blood nationalism they're like fucking oh the Celts the Welsh and the Scottish we all should stick together I'm like you realise that this is blood nationalism this is basically the exact same as like, <laughs> a white nationalism it's like it's pretty fucking dangerous ideology to have yeah so we're not promoting that we're promoting such as uh, tribalism based on uh, fitness like yeah let's all be fucking fit savages regardless <laughs> of regardless of your uh, gender or your race or whatever. So yeah, we're, we're about that life. Um, but anyway, before we get ourselves in trouble, you can also get involved with uh, program templates, eBooks on site. They're like so cheap for what you actually get in that if you buy say the four day templates, you've got multiple different programs that you can cycle through um, over the course of 2020 and beyond. And you can also learn about programming. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're hearing this RPE reps and reserve stuff and you're like, Jesus, all oh, this is a very fancy. I just like to know what are the basics of all these training variables and what should I actually know? That's all in there. <coughs> One of the things that I find these days is that because of the abundance of information that people are exposed to, like people are like really like, and I would be the same if I was just starting out now as well. So like, it's not a bad thing, but people are so stuck into the fine details that are in popular discussion among advanced trainees. Like, because obviously it makes sense to follow people who are doing really well at what you want to do, but it really, really causes you to worry about the wrong things. Um, so yeah, the program templates, they're like tenor. And you can basically learn all the basics of training in there and have a program to show you where to go. So it's a good option. Yeah, beginner ebook. Don't forget that. That's uh, yeah. pretty handy if you're a beginner. Um, well, it's pretty handy if you just want to understand these concepts a bit more. Like, covers the fucking basics of training, covers the basics of nutrition. It's pretty handy. Like, you know, uh, we do have some other ebooks planned for the coming weeks, months. We also have some fun stuff planned for the coming weeks, months. Um, but yeah that'll come out when it comes out um so how's life with you gary we'll just wrap this up with a quick life recap seeing as we're moving into the new year do you have any goals do you have any you know things that you want to do what's on with your life all that jazz um i guess what i want to do is well i'm going to be going back to college in like a week so i have like one more week off then i'm back to college and we'll have semester two of three which is really weird because like we basically have like a semester two until like march and then and we have exams and then we have a semester three until like may and then we have exams as well so it's really weird so we got like new, new modules and then new modules again um and then i got my exams in may and then hopefully get a nice summer holiday in summer not sure where yet but let's get through the next few months going to actually budapest on valentine's weekend so that'd be pretty late if anyone has been to budapest hit me up with those recommendations would you not go to mighty dublin and actually see saint valentine's remains that's where i'll go now uh, maybe maybe in the summer I'll, I'll head to dublin for a, a history tour i'll bring you on one it'll be cute right. um yeah i'm actually going to poland in like two weeks but uh, yeah, i think it's two weeks from when this is released yeah. which will be fun krakow and have some friends over there also going with a load of my friends so it'll be decent and then after that i literally just want to get my last semester of college out of the way and then just absolutely 
put in a bucket load of content for for triage so that's that's the goal to uh wreck everyone's mind with just content articles videos audios everything <laughs> decent anyway i have nothing else to say and i really don't have to look at your ugly face any longer you need a hanging for a pee right enjoy Sweet.